that the words I speak, the words we hear, be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Today is Christ the King or the Reign of Christ Sunday. And I wasn't really sure where that had come from, so I did a little reading on the internet and discovered that Christ the King Sunday came about from an encyclical letter written by the Roman Catholic Pope Pius XI in 1925. And he was concerned in particular about uh, growing nationalism and secularism. And he wanted to remind Roman Catholics that their first priority was to Christ. In a world that was increasingly fractured by national borders and national interests, in a world where loyalty to nation-state was increasingly seen as the first priority, and being Christian was seen in light of that, you were British first, then Christian, and so to be a good Christian you would support the British Empire, or if you were German first and then Christian, and so to be a good Christian meant you had to support the German state, or as we can see in America today, you are American first, and to be a good Christian means you support the American Empire. Pope Pius wanted to remind people that that was the wrong way around. That actually being Christian was the first priority. He wanted to remind his readers and all Catholics that their first loyalty was to Christ, not to Caesar. And so this Sunday was set to remind all Catholics and Anglicans and Methodists and Lutherans and Presbyterians soon came on board, it was set to remind us all that our identity is found first and foremost in Jesus Christ, not in our ethnicity, not in our culture, not in our nation, not even in our denomination. Not all those things that have become Caesar for us today. But as we look around the world and as we learn our own history, it's very obvious that that's an incredibly hard thing to do place Christ first. So Pope Pius placed this Sunday on the Catholic Church calendar and it reminds us all that it is our faith and not our nationality that should shape how we see the world. It should shape how we act and respond to events around us. I think there's a few US presidential nominees that should be reminded of Christ the King Sunday and take on board what it's about. And, actually, the current date, the last Sunday in the church year, the last Sunday before Advent, uh, came into being in 1970. So it's actually quite a recent thing, and the date is quite a recent one. So the readings we have for Christ the King Sunday, are, or the reign of Christ Sunday, as some people like to call it, um, us don't follow the line of readings we've been having so far. We've had a Mark all year, so on the last Sunday of Mark we've actually got John, and we've um, gone into Revelation and um, to Samuel. We've been drifting around Ruth for a while. So um, why do they offer these readings? Well, they offer some amazing images of what Christ the King or the kingdom of the reign of um, Christ might look like. And I was struck by two of those images. The first was David's last words in 2 Samuel, where he says, One who rules over people justly. Ruling in the fear of God is like the light of morning, like the sun rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming from the rain on a grassy land. Which is just such a beautiful image, isn't it? 
Every time I read that, I think that is so peaceful and so serene and so far from how our world looks at the moment. And if we wanted to read anywhere around 2 Samuel where David says that so far from what was happening in Israel and his own family at the time. David was dying. And within the kingdom and his own family, there were all sorts of competing interests trying to work out who might succeed him, including Bathsheba, who was rooting for her son Solomon and doing all sorts of crafty and pretty devious things to make sure that her son, who actually had no claim to the throne, would get it. And those kind of disruptions were happening right across the kingdom. So David wasn't describing anything like his own life or anything like what was happening in Israel at the time. But he was looking at what it would look like if those who ruled, ruled in the fear of God. Today is no different, is it? As these prayers behind us remind us There is so much going on. And unfortunately that second bomb last week, the first was in Beirut, the one in Paris, which sent shockwaves around the world, has become a justification, an excuse by some to repeat the refrains of hate and prejudice and to incite hate of Muslims, close borders to Syrian refugees and increase their own bombings so that more will die, which is, in the end, exactly what Daesh wants. It wants to marginalise Muslims and enlarge their pool of recruits. We are falling into the trap. We are far from being where the sun is rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming from the rain on the grassy land. So what are we then to say about the reign of Christ in the face of all of this? Well, to truly, I think, catch a glimpse of what the reign of Christ is about, I suggest we need to look at the Gospels. And today's lectionary writers offer us an interesting piece from John, from the trial of Jesus before Pilate. So we've had the public piece, where they're out the front of the Roman fort, the Antonio, that's where they probably were, the garrison by the temple, and... Um, Pilate has taken Jesus inside for a private conversation, inside the Roman garrison, where no devout Jew can ever step. And inside, this is Pilate's world, where he is supreme. And in this world, Pilate was the one that would ask the questions. And Jesus, as the prisoner, as a peasant from Galilee, as a person of low honour, would give the answers. But Jesus was never good at giving the answers, was he? He's always good at asking questions himself. And so Pilate asks a question and expects a response, and all he gets is another question. So exasperated, Pilate asks, what have you done? Now this isn't a kind of general nice inquisition, inquiry. It's actually an inquisition. The assumption in this question is, you have done something, you are guilty, I just need to work out what it is you have done, so I can work out what is the appropriate punishment. Do you die, or do we do something less? So tell me, what have you done, and I'll work it out. To which Jesus responds, My kingdom is not from this world. 
If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. The Jews here means Judean elite. We need to keep reminding ourselves that it's not all Jews. The term here uh, is about these people in Jerusalem who have uh, done very well out of the Roman invasion. But as it is, Jesus says, my kingdom is not from here. This phrase, my kingdom is not from here, is a difficult one for us to kind of deal with. But Jesus is saying that his kingdom was not about the same things that Pilate's kingdom and Caesar's kingdom and Herod's kingdom and the high priests were all about. They were all about land and power and wealth. And they would use an enormous amount of violence both to attain that and to retain it. And Jesus is saying, that is not my kingdom. If it were my kingdom, well, my followers would have risen up and fought to save me from being here. But they have not. Which is another way of saying, we are not a threat to you. Leave them alone. Now, the customary thing when you arrested a leader like Jesus was to also round up his followers, and you would crucify the leader and all the followers, just to make sure that any hint of rebellion is snuffed out, both in terms of the leadership of that rebellion and a warning to anyone else that was thinking about this might be a good thing to do. Rome was quite crucifixion happy. They would be happy to crucify 500 a day, as they did when they had the siege around Jerusalem. So the fact that the disciples weren't rounded up is an astounding thing. So why did Pilate not do that? Well, in part, I think, because Jesus made it clear that they were not a threat, that what they were on about was not the normal violent uprising that other leaders of the time were about. And so the conversation continues. This statement, my kingdom is not from this world, has often led some to believe that the reign of Christ has nothing to do with this world. It's not of this time, it's not of this place. And because of that, and people have told me this, we as followers of Christ the King don't need to worry about the events happening around us. They are of no concern to us. Our only concern is to make sure that we and other people go to heaven, which is the real place where the kingdom of God will happen, where the reign of Christ is occurring. And that's it. What happens here on this planet is of no consequence to us at all. We don't have to worry about hunger. We don't have to worry about poverty. We don't have to worry about war or injustice. None of those things, they would suggest, are our concern. Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. But this attitude bears little to resemblance to what Jesus actually said and did in the rest of the Gospels. In the rest of the Gospels, Jesus in all four of the Gospels constantly describes the kingdom of God as here and now and not yet. Always with that kind of tail on the end. The kingdom of God is now, the kingdom of God is not yet. 
the kingdom of God is here, it's not quite here. So you do have to hold that in, but there is a real sense in which the kingdom of God was happening around Jesus because Jesus was there. And the disciples got that. They got that the kingdom of God was happening around them while Jesus was alive and then after his death, after the resurrection. The kingdom of God was still happening around them. The kingdom of God happened when he acted out the generosity and the healing and at the centre of this kingdom and invited others to live lives based on God's generosity and mercy and peace, offering that to all they lived among. This vision of the reign of Christ is at the heart of the Lord's Prayer, a prayer which prays, Your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. A prayer that says the kingdom of God is now, here, in this place, as in heaven. So what does this reign look like? Well, the prayer goes on to say, give us today our daily prayer, our daily bread. A line I think most of us pray without ever really thinking about it, because actually most of us don't have to worry about our daily bread. In fact, most of us probably have too much daily bread. And if you're like me, you're trying to cut it out. So, what are we supposed to do with this line? Well, to truly understand this prayer, I think we need to remember who Jesus was teaching to pray. And there were three groups. The first group were the people who used to own land, but their debt burden had grown so high because of the Herodian and Roman taxes, let alone the temple tax, and that they had lost their land to the Judean elite. So now they were day labourers. If they were lucky, they were employed to work on their land. And by day labourers, they would be employed for the day and paid at the end of the day, which meant that day they had enough money for their daily bread. But there was no guarantee that the next day you would have enough money for your daily bread, for you and your family. And so the issue of being having daily bread was an ongoing, daily issue for these people. Would they have daily bread? To pray, give us today our daily bread, was actually a prayer of survival. They never knew whether they would have daily bread. And then there were the small landholders who still managed to cling on to their land. But they paid up to 80% of their crop in taxes. Taxes to the Herodian, to Herod, so he could do his wonderful building enterprises, to the Romans, so they could pay for their army of occupation, and the temple tax, which actually, one of the reasons the temple high priests didn't like the Galileans was the Galileans on the whole refused to pay the temple tax and have anything left over, and they didn't have a lot of respect for the high priests. So the temple didn't get a share. 80% of their crop went on taxes which didn't leave you much to live on for the rest of the year. So the issue of daily bread was also an issue for them. Would they have enough crop to survive the year? Would they have daily bread? And these people constantly lived with the fear that their debt burden would grow too high so that they would have to sell their land at a cut price to the Jerusalem elite, the the Judean elite who would then amass more land. And they too would end up with a mass of day labourers, hoping that they would get work for each day. And then there was the third group, the representatives, 
of those who lived in Jerusalem, representatives of those who owned most of the land now, who had far too much land and far too much bread and did not share that bread with others. To these three groups, Jesus teaches this prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those indebted to us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Now and forever. Amen. Yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, not Caesar. It's quite a revolutionary little line at the end. So what does this prayer mean for those three people? And how do we understand the kingdom of God, the reign of Christ, in that prayer in light of the three groups Jesus was talking to? After the bombings in Paris and the calls for the world to pray for Paris, the Dalai Lama said something that a lot of people were a little upset about. But he said, We cannot solve this problem only through prayers. I am a Buddhist and I believe in praying. But humans have created this problem and now we are asking God to solve it. It is illogical. God would say, Solve it yourself, because you created it in the first place. We need a systematic approach to foster humanistic values of oneness and harmony. If we start doing it now, there is hope that this century will be different from the previous one. It is in everybody's interest. So let us work for peace within our families and society, and not expect help from God, Buddha, or the governments. Now, a lot of people didn't like what the Dalai Lama said. But in fact, I think it is at the heart of what the kingdom of God is about. It's not about waiting for God to do something and carrying on with our lives. It's about living out the values of the kingdom in our daily lives in the hope that as we do that, others will join us and we will change the world. It is about placing the kingdom of God first and everything else second. So... This Sunday we are asked to to remember that our first loyalty is not to this country, not to our culture, not to our way of life, not even to our prejudices, as well thought out and good as they are. It is to the reign of Christ. And every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are invited to think of the generosity and compassion inherent in that prayer. And to be people who live that prayer out. Then... As the Dalai Lama suggests, we might begin to solve the problems of the world. Then, and only then, might there be any hope for this world.